0: Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this very special episode of The Empire Podcast. Lee Wannell made his bones as an actor slash screenwriter, bursting onto the scene with the grisly, ingenious horror Saw, which he made with his good friend, director James Wan. Since Wannell has primarily operated as a writer on a couple of early Saw sequels, plus the Insidious movies which reunited him with James Wan once again. With Insidious Chapter 3, 1L made the move to the director's chair, and now having caught that bug, he's back, back, back with Upgrade, a hard-boiled slice of sci-fi redolent of Paul Verhoeven's Robocop with its blend of satire, ultra-violence, and dire warnings about the dangers of technology. We used some of that technology to record this extended chat between 1L and I when he came into London last Saturday. We covered a fairly wide spread of topics, and I laughed a lot because, spoiler alert, 1L turned out to be one of the funniest people we've ever had in the pod booth, effortlessly riffing on a screenwriter's lot, deploying a number of decent impressions, including the best Steepish I've ever heard, also the only Steepish I've ever heard, but that's not split hairs, and generally being a riot. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did, and apologies in advance because you're going to hear me laughing a lot over the next 40 minutes. And some of the discussion is fairly R-rated, so please, tread softly. Here's Lee L. Enjoy. Uh, we're delighted to be joined on the Unprab podcast by the writer and director of Upgrade, Lee Whannell. How are you, sir?
1: Very good. Yeah, good. Good it's for good to- Saturday morning? Yeah, it's good. Good to be in London. Yeah, um, Here uh, for FrightFest.
0: Yes, indeed. And That's going
1: to be a... A laugh. <laughs> Sorry. I have to... I just keep breaking into my English accent.
0: <laughs> do it again. It's really do it again. Just, I mean...
1: Oh, it's going to be a laugh, yeah. It's going to be fun. Uh, that's fine. Is that, is that like a specific <laughs> region or... No, it's sort of regionless. I can do my BBC guy. I used to be good at doing my BBC reporter. Uh-huh. That's sort of like... <clears throat> We're standing not five metres from where the bomb exploded. <laughs> what was previously a... What was previously a market filled with families... Now a scene of carnage. <laughs> what do you think? That's pretty good. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah, that's that's my BBC reporter. I know you
0: still do the acting thing, but you should do the acting thing. I mean that was
1: <laughs> yeah. wow. Yeah. You know, I'm having fun doing being doing telling actors what to do right now. <laughs> that's more fun saying like stand over there, taking revenge on actors.
0: <laughs> How do you direct actors? Cuz all actors are different. So, how do you direct? Say, for example,
1: uh, how would you direct Robert De Niro? What would you do? Oh man, I think I'd be intimidated. I think I think being an actor has helped, mm-hmm. at least in terms of communication with actors, because I I don't treat them like warm props <laughs> that are there to serve my vision. You pick them up and move them yeah, around. Yeah, I I. I I think I know at least something of the psyche of an actor where you want... You're in your own little private world. See, a film set's a very busy place, as you know. There's hundreds of crew members running around, putting things up. It's very noisy and busy, and yet the scene you're about to shoot involves a young woman finding out that her mother has just died. Oh it's, it's such an intimate scene yeah. and yet you're doing it in a room filled with dozens of people kind of staring at you, yeah. you know, holding boom mics. And so I understand a little bit of that psychology of needing to reduce this noisy, crowded film set down to this private world. So, like, just a little thing. I think a lot of directors will just call out from the monitor like yeah, okay, uh, yeah, okay, Bob, that was great. Try another one, but this time, like, I never, I always make sure I want to create some sense of intimacy and privacy, so I always always leave the monitor and talk to the actor in in a low enough voice that no one else can hear it. Like this is just yeah. something that we're sharing. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of my approach to actors, but like, if I was working with Robert De Niro, I think that your mind can't help but wander to all the movies he's made before and you're like, "Well, <clears throat> I'm never going to be better than Scorsese. What am I going to bring to the table?" <laughs> so I I'd probably end up just asking him a lot of questions. <laughs> I'd I'd like, you know that old technique of like make it make them think it's their idea. Yeah. I'd start with, "So what do you want to do in this scene, Mr. De Niro?" <laughs> I don't know, you know, uh I can't do a good De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe play it like this. I don't know, what, what do you think? You can do okay. the face, but the face doesn't, the face, work, podcast, the face doesn't does work on radio. The face doesn't work on radio. Yeah, I can do the I face I can't do well. the face. Should we just do we de- could, But Julie you should de Niro have gone faces. with Pacino because then we could have... Yeah, let's have a De Niro face off. Yeah, It'll just, just be silence. We'll make for great radio. That's a pretty good... Trust me, listeners. The De Niro face I'm seeing right now is not bad. I'm not going to say it, it's awesome. Come on, man. No, it just... I have to be realistic, otherwise the listeners who can't see it won't believe it. Yeah, this is true. If we were going to do voices, I'll tell you who I can. See, I already did this on my... For Insidious 3, I came to London for the press tour, and I think right. I already trotted out this impression. Okay, go on. But uh, I, I think I can do a pretty good Steve Buscemi.
0: Oh, I've never
1: heard of Steve Buscemi. Go. Okay, yeah, let me clear uh, my yeah. throat. I've just got <clears> to... <throat> <clears throat> Yep, that was um, Peter O'Toole in 1968, <laughs> clearing his throat on the set of Lawrence of Arabia. Um, okay. You haven't said one fucking word, man. whole time we've been driving. I've been talking. You haven't said one fucking word. Total fucking silence. Two can play at that game. I'm not saying nothing. See, that's not bad for Buscemi. Holy shit. That's amazing. You know what this is? World's smallest violin plant just for the waitresses.
0: Yeah,
1: that wasn't, yeah. Hey, I lost it there a little bit. Oh, fine. Damn it. <laughs> it's damn it. Always quit while you're ahead. That's what my dad told me. <laughs> quit right when you're winning.
0: Oh, man. That's amazing. For a split second there, I thought, you know, because Steve Buscemi sound is
1: a very lucrative market. That's lucrative. Like. I know. For a split second there, you were like, oh, if only I was interviewing Steve Buscemi, <laughs> <laughs> he'd have so many interesting stories and yeah. not this. Dude who made those Saw movies...
0: Nonsense! I'm delighted to be interviewed. Delighted. I mean, just I just quickly Google you. To just remember yeah, who you yeah, are. exactly. Lee <laughs> so Wayno. Lee. Delighted
1: Del- to be with you, Mister Wan. Uh, so is um James, you were Malaysian? Is James Wan coming? <laughs>
0: yeah. Is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: exactly. <laughs> uh, can I just have a word with you, Alex? Um, yeah, I thought that James Wan was going to be here as well. Aren't they a package deal? <laughs> um, yeah, we're not a package deal anymore. We were. Yeah. If you got us from sort of two. 2004 through to 2012, uh-huh. you know, if you bought one, you got the other. I, I read but you now, were actually
0: glued together at one point for a yeah, period of three years. Yeah, we were years. separated, by,
1: <laughs> which was interesting that he's Malaysian and I'm Australian, world first mixed race Siamese twins. But uh, but yeah, he's gone off into like tentpole movie world now. Yeah. He hangs out with Aquaman and yeah, things like that.
0: doing all that sort of stuff. I mean...
1: I, yeah. Obviously, we're focused on you, but can you get them on the phone? Can you, can you, uh, can you, can <laughs> we could. We could. Can you I, actually, I actually did a, a, a very tiny role in Aquaman. Like James said, yeah, come down and do yeah, a cameo. Yeah, and uh, I think, by the way, what you saw in the trailer was the role. That is the entirety. <laughs> Spoiler alert. That's my character. There's nothing. There's no arc. That is the arc. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was great to go down there and see him on the set of that movie and see something of that scale and see him just acting like he used to on the set of Saw. <laughs> like, I think when you watch those giant movies, you're sitting in an IMAX theatre, it's loud, and you assign this gravitas to the movie because yeah. it's big. What you find out on the set of those movies is it's, it's just exactly the same as a low-budget film behind the scenes in terms of people sitting around, chatting... Yeah. I walked in and James was standing in the middle of this giant soundstage with this huge blue screen psych all around the set and Nicole Kidman's there and and there's James with a little handheld monitor like, okay, uh, now look scared. (laughs) and It kind of demystified the whole comic book movie universe when it's like, Oh, that's how it's made. It's yeah. really just uh, somebody yelling out, "Look scared!" So, so, so James Wan is
0: a is a monitor shouter outer <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't take the call given well, aside. The
1: and- problem is that on those sets, if you took the approach of taking your headphones off and running over to the actor, that'd be fifteen minutes <laughs> <laughs> of running because the stage is so big. It'd be like. <laughs> more scared. And then there's another 15 minutes where you get golf carted back to your seat. Yeah. So that's really your only option on those ones. That's okay. the benefit of low budget movies. Smaller sets, Absolutely. more intimacy. Absolutely. And
0: uh, Upgrade is very firmly in the Blumhouse uh, world. Yeah. So I imagine not the biggest budget in the world.
1: No, do you I mean, it was very ambitious
0: for the... Uh, for amazingly the, for, the,
1: for the money we had, the script was very ambitious.
0: Do you get lots of... Uh, do you get extra leeway, though, given how much money you've made for him over the years that he goes... Because he has this thing where he goes $5 million for first-time filmmakers... Uh, and for first time, uh, first time ever, in a franchise or for, for a movie that may lead to a franchise. Right. It's about five million dollars, but he'll go up for sequels or for something that has a little bit,
1: yeah, you know, like he, he and not much, not much further up. By the way, <laughs> like <laughs> it's like five point one. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it, 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 it was like that, and he does have that really firm model of like, okay, we're going to stick to this model. And this movie was a bit outside that box. I think okay. it took a while for him to wrap his head around it because he's reading the script and he's reading about car chases and fight scenes and he's trying to put that in the box of what he usually does. Yeah. But I think we found a way to do it by shooting it in Australia and just just sort of um, kind of being a bit innovative about how we parceled out the money. Okay. But it was definitely... A difficult film to, to do, you know. Um, so all, all movies are difficult, but if you're shooting a haunted house movie that's all set in one house, there's a certain manageable yeah. uh, scale to that, that that feels... It's not daunting when somebody tells you you have 25 days to shoot the movie. It, it doesn't... You don't pass out from shock because <laughs> you're like, well, it's all set in one house. Surely I can do it. Yeah. Whereas when somebody told me that this movie had to be shot in in 30 days I I did come close to passing out it just seems like a mountain that you're gonna have to climb over yeah. like, um, but the creative freedom is the thing that I treasure about it that's yeah. the that's the best thing
0: so did you write this knowing it was going to be a Blumhouse movie or had was this a script that you've had for a while and then did you have to pair it back once uh Jason Blum and Blumhouse went. Yes, okay, this is what we're doing.
1: Yeah, it was the latter. It was a film I'd written a few years ago. I actually wrote it shortly after the first Insidious movie, Mm -hmm. and I didn't write it for myself to direct. You know, at that stage, I hadn't directed a film, and I certainly wouldn't have thought of this movie as a good debut. (laughs) Would the high high degree of difficulty? So, I just wrote it, and it was much bigger budget. Like the the first draft I wrote was like the Chris Nolan version of this movie, and um, over the years, it just. It didn't get made, it was attached to a couple of different directors and we would go through that development process and it was sort of limping along and then I directed a film. Mm. I directed the third Insidious movie Mm. and I really got the bug and loved directing and as soon as I was finished with Insidious 3, I couldn't wait to get started on another film and that was a script that I had finished. Unfortunately, it was attached to someone else Mm -hmm. so I just asked for it back and that was the point at which we really started scaling it down. Like once I became the director, um, it was a thing of like, okay, can we fit this into the Blumhouse $5 million model? Mm-hmm. And so I had to do a couple of brutal machete drafts <laughs> where you like don't go in there with a scalpel. You just take out the machete like Indiana Jones yes. hacking through the jungle and you, I just started cutting cutting things. I, I wasn't so much cutting scenes out of the film as I was scaling the film down yeah um so for instance a line in the script that i had written like um gray walks into the room 10 guys rush at him and he immediately starts going to work in a fast and furious ninja like (laughs) robotic motion i i would i would rewrite that and be like gray walks into the room two guys <laughs> rush at him and then i would and then i would think for a minute and go back and be like gray walks into the room one formidable <laughs> opponent faces him and he quickly fells that opponent <laughs> with one hit to the chest <laughs> and, and so and then and then of course you have a chat to the producers and you're like gray walks into the room it's empty <laughs> The fear of his skills has clearly made the bad guys leave early. <laughs> there is a there is an open window where one of them has escaped. <laughs> Gray looks out the window. Yeah, you better run, he says. And then and then and then you know still not finished. Then you yeah. have another production meeting, and you're like, there is no room. Gray walks <laughs> past the room. <laughs> and into his car like it's it's like so it's really it's car. really yeah it's exactly car. yeah exactly gray walks home <laughs> <laughs> cars are much too expensive uh so it, 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 if you take that approach to the whole script yeah you can eventually shoehorn it into the five million dollar box that's amazing
0: because uh, one thing because it's it's a real hardcore sci-fi upgrade which i loved about it uh, but uh, you you i think you also have this lovely thing where there's lots of windowless rooms like gray lives in a house that has no windows yeah. the cars that people drive have no windows yeah. so you can get around certain things uh, that way and
1: definitely yeah it, it's it's like a mixture of practicality on the set like well you know windows are expensive and then but mixing that in with Actual thematic concerns in the film. Like in Grey's house, for instance, they recreated nature Uh rather than having a window looking out onto a garden. They just build the garden in the house. It was like technology. It was like nature had come indoors due to technology. And and that's what production design-wise, that's what we wanted the film to reflect. We wanted the technology to mimic nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, the movie Mm -hmm. is about a computer chip in a guy's body, So we wanted all the other technology in the film to second that theme. Um, You know, there's this interesting thing they do in L.A. where they have phone towers, mobile phone towers Mm. built to look like palm trees. Really? You're looking at it like, uh, that's not fooling anyone. (laughs) Like, why? (laughs) Is there really someone who's like, aren't these trees lovely? I really do think that in the future technology will be trying to integrate itself into nature. Yeah. So you'll have trees that are um, have technology built into them. Mm-hmm. I, I I feel like that's that was that was that's my theory. I may be proven horribly wrong, but I think that you know a lot of movies we've seen set in the quote unquote future, they really um, are very. Uh, upfront and garish about technology, like technology Mm -hmm. announces itself because visually that's the most interesting thing when you're watching Blade Runner. It's interesting to see these airships flying along with hologram advertisements. It's all very visual, whereas um, for this movie, the production designer, Felicity Abbott, she and I had a lot of conversations about technology trying to be hidden, not not trying to announce itself. So like... You have a rock in your house that looks like a rock, but it's actually a speaker, yeah, or a Wi-Fi um, extender. Yeah, yeah. Um, if if you have a speaker in your house that looks like a metal speaker, it's 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 announcing itself. It's saying like, "I'm a piece of tech that you have to have sitting in the corner." Whereas if it could look like a rock, if it could look like a garden. It would it would serve two yeah, purposes. Yeah, yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Anyway, that was sort of the thought about it. Yeah. Are, are you a, a technophobe yourself? Do you do you feel
0: that technology is going to kill us all?
1: I wouldn't say I'm a technophobe. I, I'm not committed enough to do that kind of unibomber thing of like move to the <laughs> log cabin and okay. grow grow my, grow my own vegetables and write on a typewriter. <laughs> um, where, where are you standing on the gray on the gray scale? On are the grayscale, I'm 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 that. Terrible person who has a phone and, and like has a Twitter account, but spends all my time complaining about it. So, at least, at least with the Luddite, you know, like my brother won't, he has a phone, but he has a what you would call a dumb phone. Like it's this prehistoric (laughs) little piece of plastic. Yeah. Yeah, All it does is make phone calls. You can barely text on it. I tried to send a text on it and gave up when it took 45 minutes to say (laughs) hello. when he goes on on his sort of anti-technology rants and he, he he has the uh actions to back it up okay whereas i'm like yeah i hate technology oh sorry just got a tweet <laughs> <laughs> so I, i'm the worst of all worlds yeah. but i i sort of i'm worried about i think tech is amazing and it's it's going to benefit society in a lot of ways especially medical technology i mean I'm hoping that in 20, 30, 40 years' time, cancer is a thing of the past because some form of medical technology has come along and eradicated it. So it can be wonderful. The thing that worries me about tech is how we as humans utilise it, like social media and things like that. Like I can see 20 years down the line, I I can see if this is how invested people are in their Instagram accounts, I can't imagine how invested they're going to be in their virtual reality avatars. Yeah the the good looking version of them that exists in you know other world or whatever crazy platform like it's yeah. it's I can sort of see I just I don't know I just, I just I hate how much of themselves people invest in their in these online avatars of themselves mm-hmm. like people spend so much time curating their instagram account or their facebook account to make it seem as if they're living this perfect life mm-hmm. and um and it's it's something that no one else is worried about i guess it seems kind of flippant because we are talking instagram is like it's a online version of a photo album so people are very flippant about it it's not sinister in the way that like if the if the uk if the, if the you know, British Parliament tomorrow announced that they were going to have surveillance drones yeah. flying over London, well, that's very sinister and you'd probably yeah. have protests in the street because our rights are being taken away by these. But if you bring up Instagram, people just roll their eyes. And they're like, oh, yeah. who cares? Let people have fun. Why? I don't think it's fun. I think it's breeding a really toxic brand of narcissism in people. Not everybody, but I live in Los Angeles, and I can my imagine. God, you have to you have to sit there at restaurants and like your meal is ruined because you you're straining really hard to hold back the vomit <laughs> while you watch the girl at the next table go. Another thing that's great for radio listeners, I'm <laughs> I'm doing a visual impression of someone taking a selfie right now, and believe really you me, it was. It fucking was fucking awesome. It was
0: very good. You, you even did the, uh, the the camera phone. Oh, yeah. And, the, and I, well, yeah.
1: the other thing I like is the 60 takes. Yeah. Just woke up like this. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> nope, didn't make it. Now, I can't stand that narcissism. And I, I don't think it's flippant. I don't think it's harmless. Mm-hmm. I think it's changing the way our brains work and making us into these, making a large portion of us into these weird, have you seen that film Eighth Grade? Not yet. I hear it's really good. I mean, that film has more to say about technology than upgrade. It's a brilliant oh, really? film. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's about a 13-year-old girl, and I swear you come out of there. with It's, it's wow. a dystopian film.
0: My God. Can you get uh, Bo Burnham on the phone as well? Uh,
1: yeah, James I know. Watt, wouldn't we'll that just, be a great interview? We'll just, we'll just, we'll just like, imagine if you were talking to Bo Burnham right now. He'd have all these great <laughs> insights. But could he do a quality Steve Buscemi? That's the question that you have is, to ask yourself. God, what, what, what would Steve Buscemi doing a selfie look like, I wonder?
0: On, on, a oh podcast, on a podcast, on
1: a podcast, it'd be like it'd be accidental. He'd be trying to use Google Maps and accidentally take a photo of himself, so it'd probably look really bad, really bad angle of him. Just like, the eye. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> um, yeah, just the eye. He's got those wonderful eyes. He does it's beautiful. He you could just stare melt into them all day. Them. Yeah. great eyes. He kind of his eyes. You remember in Total Recall the opening scene when Arnold Schwarzenegger's <laughs> helmet breaks and his eyes, He's going, like, yeah, uh, like if yeah. you pause that scene, that's what Steve Buscemi <laughs> looks like, his eyes. He's like halfway through. I really hope Steve Buscemi is not listening to this. Oh, yeah. Because
0: yeah. I, I, I could want to work with him. I don't think Steve Buscemi does technology somehow. You I, know, just, I just get that feeling. I've interviewed him once and he was a lovely, lovely guy, but I get the sense that even using a phone was a stretch for him. <laughs> There's just something about that. Exactly.
1: He's still writing telegrams. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. Interview going well. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Folks at Empire seem lovely. Stop. Send mead and whiskey. Stop. <laughs> and the sheriff. Yeah, he's like, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my word. Right, so back on track. Uh, I believe the film is called Upgrade. And yes, it is. You came up with the idea years and years ago then. So when you were uh, just after writing the first Insidious. Yeah, it was, I think it was the next script I wrote after Insidious. Something must have triggered that. Because that, that's, we're going way back, Lee.
1: This is like almost six, back seven, to 2010. <laughs> I mean, this is I crazy. Mean, wow. Some I, people were uh, only 10 years old. That makes me sick. Yeah, it what It is going a while back. I mean, what I guess what triggered it is that I always loved. Um, I've always loved sci-fi films, and there's a particular strain of sci-fi that I love, which is that. I guess no one's really officially named it, but I guess it's like sci-fi noir. You know, films like The Terminator, the first Matrix. I guess is a yeah. good. I know the term cyberpunk. Gets thrown around. Maybe that's maybe cyberpunk is what I mean when I say sci-fi noir. Okay. What what is the actual dictionary definition of cyberpunk? I, I will look it up. Yeah, we have you to look it up. You, you keep talking while I you, yeah looked, you look yeah. it up. But there's a certain um, there's a certain version of sci-fi that almost feels like a film noir with sci-fi elements, mm-hmm. and I've always just loved it. I love I love I think that it's that I love those two genres separately. I love film noir and detective stories I love I love old film noir like you know Humphrey Bogart films from the 40s and I also love modern noir like you know blood simple and brick and mm. and stuff like that and 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 I love sci-fi and I, I just think there's something for me there's something great that happens when you combine those two genres and um, because one is so old school. Mm-hmm. I think I think the tenets of Film Noir, it's it's based in that sort of nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, like gumshoe thing. Such an old world mentality. So maybe something intriguing happens. It's like chemistry, you know, you throw the wrong thing in there and it just fizzes up like I think when you when you marry when you marry that gumshoe thing to science fiction, yeah, something interesting happens in my opinion. And um so I, I always wanted to make that film and I think Upgrade was me just saying, okay, I've got to get this out of my system or it's, you know, that's all screenwriting is really is like getting the movies out of your system that you would like to see. How quickly did you write the script initially? The first draft wasn't too bad. It was probably a couple of months but the the actual – Process of writing the movie through all the drafts from first draft to shooting the movie was about seven years. Wow. So it was a long time. I would go off and do other things and then I would come back to it and kind of re-examine it and it was always attached to other directors, so I was actually taking notes from other directors. At one stage, the Spearig brothers were attached. Oh, really? Okay. Australian directors yeah. and, and friends of mine, and they were giving me all their notes. They were like, we think it should be more like this, that, and they had some great ideas that I, some thoughts that I kept in the script and then other things, but it, it is interesting to do someone else's version of a script because when it when it, when it it came back to me, um, you realise that, the stuff you love was the stuff from the first draft. That's why you wrote it. And you, in a way, when you're only the screenwriter on a film and you're serving a director, it's like a slow. Sometimes it can be a slow death where you you're told to kill the things you love. Yeah. yeah. And but you, but you don't have an option because the director's the boss. So when the director tells you, "Ah, oh, the scene with the baby has to go." Mm-hmm. Privately, you're like, oh, I love the scene with the baby. <laughs> but publicly, you're like, great idea. Yeah. Always hated that baby scene. <laughs> don't know why I wrote it. Yeah, don't know why I wrote it. Idiot. Start punching yourself. Stupid, stupid idiot. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of self-hatred with screenwriters. Um, but then when when you're the boss, when you are both boss and screenwriter, you're like, well, I really like the baby scene. Guess what, shitheads? It's going back in. <laughs> there was no baby scene in the spirit. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna- Disclaimer, like, there was no baby scene in the Spirit <laughs> Brothers never told him to get rid of it. That's my little American drug commercial <laughs> disclaimer. Lipitor me t- caused lung cancer and said, so <laughs> um, um, but you know what I mean? Like, So you, you're pleasing yourself and I really like that. There's something good about being a writer-director because when you write a film, you direct a film. You just don't direct it for real. You direct it in your head. And you, 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 what I, I watch the movie when I'm writing it. Yeah. And it's very different to writing a novel because a novel is written to be read. A, yeah. a screenplay is written to be seen. So when I write a scene, I am watching that scene in a theatre. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you hand the script off to a director they make a different scene. <laughs> yes. And, and, and you're sitting there in the theatre watching the actual movie and it's not the same movie yeah. that you were watching and and sometimes that can be an improvement. Like, oh, wow, I never would have thought of that. Uh-huh. Thank God this guy came along who was smarter than I am. And, <laughs> and sometimes it can be painful and you're like, oh, God, if only um, <laughs> if I've, one, I've yeah. experienced both. I can imagine, yeah. Like James Wan, he, he often did things that I thought were so great and he took what I had written and he would improve on it. But an interesting thing happens when you're doing both roles because you get to bring the movie in your head to life. And I think – so I think going forward, I don't know if I could direct someone else's script. I'd always want to make my own stuff. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, t- and then tell yourself to cut the baby scene. Yeah,
1: exactly. Have an argument with cut yourself. Cut baby and- scene. You know when you do have that argument with yourself is in editing – Oh, yeah. So you get in the edit room You have all these delusions of grandeur About what a masterpiece you're making And then you get into the edit room And you just become ruthless You're like, that baby scene takes three seconds too long And the editor's like, well let's try it Get rid of it, <laughs> burn, it, never, it. burn it It never existed <laughs> I hate babies <laughs> And the editor's like "Well, I, don't, I think we should give it a chance <laughs> No, fuck it So I, I became um, quite ruthless with the film Okay. Chopping things left and right me. Everybody always says, oh the producers They come in and they hack up your movie With a machete And I have the opposite experience where the producers are like You know, I think we could have a bit more character development I'm like, fuck character development What are teenagers in Winnetka gonna think? <laughs> have, you, have you seen these kids' attention spans? <laughs> so um I have a scene where a man doesn't even walk into a room now. Yeah, exactly. How
0: is that going to take Exactly.
1: Him? I feel like the thought of him going into the room is taking up too much time. <laughs> you know what? Let's not release this. It just ta- it's too long. It's distracting. Let's just release a trailer. <laughs>
0: a title and a trailer is good. Works. Works every time. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But the movie's been out for a while now in the States. Yes.
1: Yes. Which um, makes it very easy to pirate. Sorry. Don't don't do uh, that. Don't do do that though. Video piracy is a crime. Do not accept it. It's a crime. Yeah. It's a crime against artists. Against (laughs) art itself. (laughs) You might as well dig up William Shakespeare and spit on his rotten little skull. That's weirdly what I'm doing this afternoon. Really? Yeah. I saw that tour being advertised. Yeah. That's and I was true. like, oh, do I do that or the Jack the Ripper tour? <laughs> you should have done the, the Shakespeare. I, on the the or... Spit on the grave Spit on the, yeah. Maybe I will try and fit in both. <laughs> anyway. Problem is, it's up at Stratford. It's yeah, up, exactly. It's a whole, a whole, it's thing. A whole joke. I, don't, I just don't
0: want to go to Stratford. Now someone's writing in. Someone's <laughs> yeah. screaming at the podcast, well, you want to marry Stratford?
1: <laughs> Dear Empire, <laughs> I love Stratford. I've lived here my whole life and had a perfectly good life. <laughs> Every morning we wake up and
0: spitting <laughs> Shakespeare's grave Spitting
1: on Shakespeare's a sacred ritual That we in Stratford take very seriously And we are done with you Bloody Australians coming over here And shitting on
0: it So you Shitting on as you upgrade <laughs> Yeah the exactly yeah.
1: No that's the VIP too. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing $400 a pop
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh my word Um but whenever the uh, whenever the movie came out, how can people? How can I segue back to the film? After yeah, that? exactly. But whenever um, stay on this. Whenever the movie came out uh, in the states, people on Twitter were going. And I'm sure you've heard this lots of times. Lee Unnel has made Venom before Venom is it's actually released. Well,
1: they at first they weren't saying that. They then they started saying it when the Venom trailer came out. <laughs> then it was like, oh wow, and I was like, wow, okay. Venom. Okay, um, I did have uh, Chris Tilly, uh, respected. London-based film journalist. <laughs> I quibble um, with one of those words, but yeah, go. yeah, <laughs> he'll be listening. Unlike Steve Buscemi, he will be listening. Uh, he he said that 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 uh, Venom was always like that in the comic books, uh-huh. and I was not familiar with Venom, so there goes my argument for. Well, we got there first. <laughs> um, so so I guess I guess I'll have to just settle for this being the kind of kind of sci fi Cronenberg R rated version yeah, of Venom. Absolutely. With uh with Bloke who looks like Tom Hardy. I know. That was the that was the, the double whammy was there. But yeah, I haven't seen uh, Venom yet. No, I don't believe anyone has. Um so, uh, yeah, I, imagine when I upgrade- can't p- comment on it.
0: When Upgrade came out, you could probably hear the screams from,
1: know, <laughs> from inside Sony. I know. <laughs> <No>! <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily for them, I mean, we had a fraction of their budget and, yeah. and they're obviously a huge Marvel movie, so that maybe they'll be probably more visible than us. But um, I think that our film is um, so much about technology. Yeah. You know, it's it's Venom is obviously a superhero character that's part of the, the Marvel universe and it's part of this, like, Upgrade... Is, I guess, the 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 um, superhero aspects of it, fight scenes and stuff, are kind of all there in support of this technology tale. You know, it's almost like it's to me it's closer to like an episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, that's got gotten a, a bit more visceral. Than anything, yeah.
0: I know you said in the past that there may not be a sequel to this. Did
1: you have one planned? Do you ha- is there an upgrade 2.0 knocking around somewhere? No, I mean, I never plan sequels while I'm writing films. I'm, I'm not very good at multitasking for a start. I'm always writing it and just thinking this is hard enough just to do this. And also I'm too superstitious to start planning sequels. I feel like you are taunting the movie gods if you start <laughs> outlining your sequel <laughs> plans the the movie gods who are very much uh, who I've very much come to believe in after being on movie sets when you're when you're wondering about whether it's going to rain on your perfect outdoor shot um, I feel like as soon as they they hear those plans for the sequel they're going to be like oh really you think so <laughs> sorry about that yeah um, so I try to even with Saw which obviously they made about twenty four sequels to that film. Mm-hmm. James Wan and I, when we made that film, we only thought of that as a standalone movie. We thought it was really final, like the door shuts, cut to black, movie over, see you later, go on to the next movie. Mm-hmm. It was the producers who had other ideas. And um I I wrote two of the sequels, and when I was writing them, I really felt like I was kind of tacking more story onto the end of a story. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It would be like it would be like um, you know, uh, saying and then snow white woke up after the handsome prince, prince killed her uh, kissed her i should say and then <laughs> well, that's a different tale different different tale and they all lived happily ever after and then <laughs> snow white was at the local market and this guy said to her that he uh had some magic beans and they you know like it's like wait the story ended like um so to to me, sometimes sequels can feel very inorganic like that, mm-hmm. that driven driven more by finance. So with with upgrade, um, I definitely feel like it's a one and done. That's the one and yeah. yep, one and over. That was it's a long a, answer to that question. I could have just said like nope. <laughs> kept it short. <laughs> Thank God you didn't, otherwise we'd have been. I would have given you the, the Billy Bob Thornton interview. <laughs> I live in fear of having a bit of Have you, have you seen that interview online? I have. For the, I think it's a Canadian TV station. It's Canadian. Or, I think it's a Canadian yeah. music station. Right, like a radio show? Yeah. Oh, yeah. man, that would be painful. <sighs> really, I'm fascinated by people who can do that.
0: Like, or just not react well.
1: In or, Like interview subjects who have the temperament and indeed confidence <laughs> to be shitty. <laughs> like... I guess there's some famous, can, famously cantankerous mm-hmm. interview subjects. Like, I hear that um, Van Morrison's not much fun. I, I've, I've seen Van Morrison in concert,
0: yeah, and he was
1: not that much of a laugher. No. Well, in concert's one thing, but, like, have you ever seen him be interviewed? No, but I've heard bad things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I hear that Tommy Lee Jones is is not fun. But I kind of want to do Tommy Lee Jones one day. Well, oh, he's I, a brilliant I, actor, but... Yeah, but he's amazing. There's so much to talk
0: about, but... Um, he, You know, you want to be the guy to break them down, don't you?
1: I did. I used to work on a TV show in the mid 90s (laughs) uh, when I was nine. Uh, No, I was older than that. Uh, And uh, I was the movie guy on this TV show, Recovery. And so I got to interview all the movie people. Mm -hmm. And I remember interviewing uh, Christopher Guest, (laughs) who, and he was out in Australia, he was in Australia promoting Best in Show, Mm -hmm, I think. Mm hmm. And uh, it was like a package deal. It was like three of them on the couch. It was like him and Harry Shearer. And, of course, I love Spinal Tap and I'm such a fan of those guys. I was excited to be interviewing them. But that's the only interview I can recall that was really like pulling teeth. (laughs) I remember at one stage I said, um, so you've done all these different subjects. You've done music and, you know, now you've done dog shows and you've done amateur theatre. Would you ever consider doing a mockumentary about politics you know, with inside the crazy American political scene, and he was like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> "For people who can't see this, uh, Lee has just done a kind of
1: it was like a maybe it was face. like a half
0: shrug. Yeah, it was a little shrug. You raised your hand, yeah. at a forty five degree angle. That's what he did. Went, he,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: No, you didn't even do that. So I've, yeah. I've supplied the sound effects. That's how you, good your face was that yes. it made me think that you had we, said that.
1: Half of this interview has been you describing <laughs> to the audience what I'm doing. This is the worst radio interview in the history of the world. Thank God it's a podcast.
0: We're good. Thank God for technology. We've upgraded
1: from radio to podcast. I always do. I'm an opposites person. When I go on radio, I do a lot of visual gags, and when I go on television, I put a bag on my head.
0: It's all talk. I've got to let you go, Lee. But one last thing, I want to. I want to. I've got a bone to pick with you. Okay. Because uh, on the podcast, we have. I've talked for years of a fictional film uh, called Upgrade 2, colon, holding pattern, colon, unlandable, colon, with Carl Weathers as Carl Weathers. Uh, I once pitched this This film to Carl Weathers. This is
1: a film, it was called Upgrade 2. Yeah. Wow, interesting.
0: And the whole point of this film was it was called Upgrade 2. And the whole point of that was that there was no Upgrade 1. And now you fucked it.
1: I'm going to have to make that film now. You're going to have to, and you have to even. What did Carl Weathers say?
0: He's in as long as we can get Halle Berry to be his co-pilot, co-star slash co-pilot.
1: It's set in a plane. Wow, Carl Weathers. There's an underappreciated actor. See, you're on board already. What's that line from Predator that I just love? He's like, um, he goes, "Bullshit." (laughs) What she said doesn't make any sense. And then Arnie goes. You still don't understand, do you, Dylan? Whatever it was out there, it got Mac and Hawkins, and now it wants us. That's <laughs> a great. I love Predators so much. <laughs> predators, great. It's I can a do a good, good, good Predator noise. Ready? Yeah, go on it.
0: Fuck, yeah. This that is so good. good. This is so...
1: I see you. <laughs> that's Mac. <laughs> Turn around. Turn around. <laughs> Let's just do... Uh, is there, are we still on the air? Over here, over here. Yeah, we are. Amazingly, <laughs> yeah. Over here. <laughs> That's me doing the predator noise, by the way. A lot of you listeners think that yeah. uh, someone just hit a button and made that happen like happens no in Radio Land. No. There's no buttons in this studio. This is no Empire. They don't have the money for buttons. We barely have a studio. <laughs> um, we're actually sitting on milk crates right now in <laughs> Soho Square. There's a pigeon yeah. Taking a crap on my leg right now. Yeah.
0: I'm not recording this. I have to write all oh, this stuff shit. down and do the voice. Do we have another on.
1: interview to go to? We do have another Can't interview just to go. we talk.
0: Oh, man. Lee Whannell, it's been an absolute pleasure. I- I'll be completely honest. I was hoping to interview James Wan, but um, True. Well, this, is, this I, has
1: been all right. You know, I, th- I don't think James can do Predator impressions. <laughs> at, at best, he could, you know, quote a line from Predator and he wouldn't do it in a voice. I am the so, Predator, he would say. Yeah. Which is exactly. even a line from that film. Anyway, so I'm going let you go. <laughs> right, bye.
0: Thanks, I'm being man. dragged out. Bye. <laughs> Cheers, bye. Okay, so that was Lee L and not James Wan or Bo Burnham, but hey, you can't have everything. And that's it for this L Upgrade Special. The film is out now and you can also listen to this week's regular episode of the Empire Podcast on your podcast app of choice. You can also still get tickets to see us live next week at the London Podcast Festival. So go to www.kingsplace.co.uk for that. Until we meet again... I've been Chris Hewitt. Thanks for listening. Bye.